Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He koonai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Ray Aho. Welcome to Black Sheep. This is episode two of our two-part series on Edward Gibbon Wakefield, the driving force behind the New Zealand Company, which promoted and organised the colonisation of Aotearoa in the 1830s and 40s. But for the start of this episode, we're going to spend a bit more time talking about some other members of the Wakefield clan, because the thing is, colonising New Zealand was a bit of a family business. First, we need to reintroduce Edward Gibbon's little brother, William, You might remember William from last episode. He was the brother who went to jail for helping Edward Gibbon abduct and marry a teenager in the 1820s. We're picking up the story with William Wakefield aboard a ship called the Tory in 1839. William Wakefield was the New Zealand Company's principal agent in Aotearoa. His job was to get to New Zealand ASAP and buy up all the land the company needed for its planned settlements. The expedition had been funded mostly by the sale of New Zealand company shares, and that was turning out to be quite a risky investment. Here's historian Dr Philip Temple. The reason the Tory set off in 1839 was to get to New Zealand, and in particular Wellington, before... Hobson could get there and um, negotiate a treaty with Māori. As we mentioned last episode, that treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, would make it illegal for the New Zealand company to buy land directly from Māori. When the company heard about this, it knew it only had a tiny window of time to act. The Wakefields knew the only way that it could make economy work was to get the land for sweet buckaroo, you know, blankets and knives and muskets... <laughs> and then sell it for a big profit uh, to the incoming settlers. To get the, that was the only way the company could work. Rushing the whole damn thing, of course, was a recipe for disaster. Yeah, but more on that in a minute. The Tory headed for the Cook Strait, which the company had identified as the best spot for colonisation, particularly Te Whanganui Atara, a.k.a. Wellington Harbour. The Tory arrived in the harbour on September 20th, 1839, and William Wakefield went ashore at Batone to meet the locals. For Māori, this was a very confusing situation. You know, the understanding between the two cultures was miles apart, essentially. This is Māori Love, chair of the Wellington Tenths Trust and a komatua of Te Atiawa, one of the main tribes which was living around the harbour when William Wakefield arrived. The imperatives were, were extremely different, and of course there's, there's also the difficulties of language. William Wakefield had some local whalers to give him advice about Māori culture. He also had naiti. You might remember that's the Māori man who Edward Gibbon Wakefield had brought out to London to help promote his colonisation plans. Here's Matthew Baker, a member of Ngāti Tōr and curator Māori at Te Papa Museum. Ngāti was um, from Ngāti Tōr, 
took the passage to England and lived with the Wakefields for about two years before coming up them on the Tory. You might think spending two years with Naiti would give the Wakefields a good understanding of Māori culture and customs, but that doesn't seem to have happened. It's lost in translation, I assume, as it often was with the Wakefields. I just think they're on a, a very different agenda. So we can already see plenty of opportunities for misunderstanding and mistakes. On top of that, Māori and Wellington had already been through enormous upheaval over the past few decades. The musket wars had completely reshaped the region. Iwi and Hapu from Taranaki had migrated down to get away from fighting further north. They then either conquered or absorbed a lot of the existing Wellington tribes. Some Taranaki Hapu went on to seize land in the Chatham Islands and parts of the South Island. This all happened under the shadow of a legendary Ngāti Toa rangatira, Te Rauparaha. Now, Te Rauparaha really deserves his own podcast at some stage, but for now, I'm just going to give you an extract from his biography on Te Ara. Te Rauparaha was descended from Hōturoa, of the Tainui canoe. Both his parents were descended from the founding ancestors of their tribes. Although not of the highest rank, he rose to the leadership of Ngāti Toa because of his aggressive defence of his tribe's interests and his skill in battle. He was short of stature, but of great muscular strength. In profile, he had aquiline features. When excited, his eyes would gleam, and his lower lip would curl downwards. Larger than life, he was a legend in his own lifetime, without a doubt. Not a young man, um, but still fit, strong, capable. And very sharp, too. Very sharp, very present person. Te Rauparaha was in his 70s by the time William Wakefield arrived in Wellington, but he was still a powerful force in the region. Basically, every Māori William met told him that if he wanted to deal for land, he needed Te Rauparaha's approval. So, William Wakefield met with the chief, took him aboard the Tory, and offered him blankets and soap in exchange for land. Te Rauparaha was not keen on this deal. Of what use are such things when we are going to war? What does it matter to us whether we die clean or dirty, cold or warm, hungry or full? We must have two barreled guns and plenty of muskets. So they got down to negotiating. The New Zealand Company's proposal was that if Māori agreed to sell their land, they'd get an upfront payment in trade goods... Plus, they'd retain ownership of a tenth of the land in the new settlement. The company argued that the value of that tenth would rise massively once the colony took off, and the tribe could then either continue to live in the town or sell off their land at a massive profit. The company put it like this in its instructions to William Wakefield. Instead of a barren possession with which they had parted, Māori would have property and land intermixed with the property of civilised, industrious settlers and made really valuable by that circumstance. This is where we hit a couple of really big problems. And these are problems which affected the New Zealand Company's land deals all over the country, not just in Wellington. First, like we mentioned earlier, Māori had no concept of buying and selling land, so this whole idea of land speculation made absolutely no sense to them. 
Matthew Baker. There's no sense that they were selling it outright. Mm. Rather, they were allowing another party to buy into living with them. I mean, you get the feeling that in Parkow terms, it's more like a long-term lease of land than, than a sale of land. That's right. I, I think that's how Aotupuna really perceived it. The other big problem was that most Māori simply did not believe William Wakefield when he told them how many Pākehā would be coming to live in these settlements. Māori had no real conception, and it changed, of course, very rapidly, of the numbers that would arrive. The New Zealand Company eventually sent more than 15,000 people to Aotearoa, that would have been roughly 20% of the entire Māori population at the time. You can see why Māori might have found that unbelievable. Anyway, William Wakefield's expedition was basically a success. Setting aside the whole issue of whether he'd really bought land, he at least got permission from Māori to establish the settlements, which we now know as Wellington, Petone, Porirua, Nelson and New Plymouth. Meanwhile, back in the UK, Edward Gibbon Wakefield and the rest of the New Zealand Company's directors were frantically organising the colonists for these new settlements. By the end of August 1839, they had six shiploads ready to go. And we should point out, these ships set sail before anyone in Britain knew what had happened to William Wakefield's expedition. Like, you could easily have had a situation where the colonists rocked into Wellington Harbour only to find the Tory had sunk in a storm and never reached New Zealand, or that Māori had rejected the company's land deals. The whole thing's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, when you, th- you know, when you look at it, you think, my God. But um, um, we still have uh, companies formed which promise the earth <laughs> and people still go along with it. Then discover in the end, oh, hang on, this is not quite what uh, we were expecting. And then, of course, when the settlers get there, I mean, it's not a complete disaster, but they run into some pretty significant problems really quickly, not the least their first settlement site being on the floodplain of the Hutt River. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, making these planned settlements on sites of which they had no knowledge whatsoever and um, just assuming that it would work. I mean, the whole thing's slightly crazy, but... Um... And then you've got perspective of, the perspective of the local Māori, many of whom have actually not been consulted at all about any of this, no, and, no. Have, and have all of these white people turning up yeah. in these giant boats, offloading yes. themselves and going, where the hell did these, pe- these people come from? Yeah, it's slightly amazing, actually, when you sort of think about it. <laughs> On the one hand, it is, it is uh, absurd... Um, and certainly not taking into account the ideas of the local people. But then on the other hand, you have to say, wow, fancy doing that, fancy setting off. (laughs) Um, This is before the age of steam or telegraph or anything, in a bunch of sailing boats and going to literally the other side of the world and saying, "Okay, we're going and we're going to make a life there and actually create um, relatively civilised settlements. I mean, that's astonishing. It's a bit like saying, as will happen, in 50 years' time, right, we're off to Mars, you know. <laughs> it was almost the 19th century equivalent. So, while the settlers were struggling to cope with the 19th century equivalent of life on Mars, and while Māori were struggling to cope with the settlers, something else was happening which would change Aotearoa 
forever. Hey, iwi, tahi, tato. We are now one people. On February 6th, 1840, Lieutenant William Hobson and more than 40 Māori rangatira signed Te Tiriti o Waitangi, the founding document of Aotearoa New Zealand. Hobson went on to proclaim sovereignty over the whole of the North Island by unanimous consent, even though several iwi refused to sign the treaty. He also claimed sovereignty over the South Island without consulting Naitahu. And this all basically happened because the British government was under huge pressure to take control of New Zealand before anyone else could. When Hobson proclaimed sovereignty over the South Island, this was to do because the French were, uh, were establishing a settlement in Akaroa. And the French weren't the only ones pushing the British government towards a greater role in New Zealand. There was pressure coming from Māori, and, and, and Māori it was uh, for somebody to deal with the unruly Europeans, the sealers and whalers and so on. And finally, the British government finds out that the New Zealand company was planning to ship thousands of its own people to this country. And once they got here, for all intents and purposes, they'd be beyond the reach of British law. Wellington really was the transaction that forced the hand and something needed to be done. But as Dr Temple said earlier, rushing the whole thing was a recipe for disaster. Famously, the Treaty of Waitangi was written and translated basically overnight. The signing ceremony was chaotic and problems with mistranslation caused all kinds of problems later on in our history. It kind of makes you wonder, could things have turned out better if the New Zealand company hadn't forced the British government to act in such a rush? I put that question to Maury Love. Certainly the New Zealand company forced the hand, but... You know, I, I think the hand needed to be forced. In my view, I, I think the treaty was signed late. The British came into New Zealand late. And, and, of course, it ended up with sort of everything crammed into a few months around the turn in, into 1840. Could a, a, a more perfect treaty have been done? Maybe. I, I guess we just have to accept... The history as it was, it was messy, it was done in haste, but I think in the end it, it, it had to be, or some other outcome that, that might not have worked so well, particularly for Māori, might have existed. So that's one perspective. Let's get back to the story. The signing of the treaty meant some serious roadblocks for the New Zealand company. For one thing, William Hobson, now Governor Hobson, promised that all pre-treaty land sales would be investigated and any dodgy deals would be revoked. That was a scary prospect for the New Zealand company because a lot of the deals it had signed with Māori were very dodgy indeed. William Wakefield and the other company officials did all they possibly could to undermine and obstruct Governor Hobson's investigations, refusing meetings, delaying court proceedings and degrading Hobson in print with quotes like this. Incompetence is stamped upon every act by Governor Hobson. Our interests have been daily sacrificed to the inability, peak partiality or indifference of the man. Governor Hobson clapped back, basically accusing the company of fraud. 
The company continues to sell towns in England which are beyond the actual wants of the colony and are used merely as a means of carrying on gambling speculations by persons who never dream of becoming colonists. And Hobson had a point there. A lot of the rich Brits who bought land in New Zealand never actually came here. They were just sitting on their land, hoping to sell it for a profit when prices rose, the first in a long, proud tradition of New Zealand property speculators. This was a big problem for the New Zealand company. Edward Gibbon Wakefield's whole theory of colonisation depended on rich people migrating to his new colonies. They were supposed to fund the infrastructure, set up businesses, create jobs. Without them, unemployment was rising and the company was running out of money for relief payments. The colonists weren't happy. This was a long way from what they'd been promised in the company's brochures. There were strikes and protests and angry petitions. And then there were physical problems, like um, with Nelson not having enough flatland to um, turn it into a self-sustaining agricultural settlement. Nelson was under the leadership of yet another Wakefield sibling, Arthur Wakefield. Like we said, colonising Aotearoa was a bit of a family business. By this point, we had Arthur Wakefield in charge of Nelson, William Wakefield in Wellington, plus Edward Gibbon Wakefield's son, Jerningham Wakefield, roaming around Whanganui. We could do a whole other episode on Jerningham Wakefield, but for now, let's stick with Arthur. Arthur Wakefield was desperate to find more farmland to make Nelson viable, and in 1843, he thought he found a solution. His brother William had bought a deed to land in the Wairo Valley from the widow of a sailing captain called John Blinkensop. Arthur sent out an expedition which reported the valley was perfect for farming. But Arthur could see there would be issues with occupying this land. He wrote to the New Zealand company's head office, saying, I rather anticipate some difficulty with the natives. That's putting it mildly. Matthew Baker says the problem was that Ngāti Tor believed this document, the John Blenkinsop deed, was a work of complete and utter fraud. An absolutely duplicitous document, <laughs> unequivocally. Certainly, from the perspective of Teropraha, the conversation that he had with Blenkinsop was about an agreement to provide access to land, to provide resources to support him, for example, water, timber, things of that nature, in exchange for a cannon. Ngāti Tōa were never able to get that cannon to work, it was a bit old and rusty, and it's still sitting outside the Marlborough District Council building today. Blenkinsop, for his part, went away and wrote up um, a comprehensive deed of sale mm. for everything. So now we've got a situation where Arthur Wakefield is saying the New Zealand company owns this land and he's got a legal document to prove it. Whereas Ngāti Tōa are saying, no, you don't own that land, and your document is a complete forgery. The whole mess was under investigation by a special commissioner set up by the governor. But Arthur Wakefield refused to wait. He sent in surveyors to mark up the land for farming. 
Ngāti Tō, being very concerned about it and having already raised um, questions with Commissioner Spain about that, had gone over to interrupt the surveying of it. And they were very, very careful in doing that. They, they removed the gentleman carefully, <laughs> firmly I think, but carefully, took all of their equipment and, and took it off the block and then burnt down the makeshift fuddies that they'd built. And part of the point about that, right, is that the fuddies were built out of materials off from land. that land. Of course. So they were only burn they weren't burning anything that wasn't already their property was sort of the point that was being made. No, that's right. They're very, very careful to to not, you know, break or or damage any of their own personal equipment. They just wanted to make a, a a firm but gentle point, you really shouldn't be here, this is our land and, um, and it's not okay to come and survey it. It was a, a non-violent protest, you could say. But Arthur Wakefield didn't take the hint. He claimed the burning of these huts was arson and asked the local police magistrate to issue a warrant of arrest for Te Rauparaha and his nephew, Te Rangi Hayata. The group Arthur took to arrest the Ngāti Tōa chiefs were a motley mix. There was Arthur himself, the editor of the local newspaper, the local storekeeper and chief surveyor, plus a group of labourers, in total 49 men, mostly armed with pistols and muskets and a handful of rusty old swords. They were led by the police magistrate, Augustus Thompson, a dangerously unstable man prone to angry outbursts and panic. At first, they treated the whole thing as a bit of a joke. As Arthur wrote, We shall overcome these travelling bullies. But Arthur Wakefield had badly underestimated Ngāti Tōa. Arthur and his men arrived at the Ngāti Tōa camp on June 17th, 1843. And of course, Raha and Rangi Hayata are not there on their own. They're there with the company of probably, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 other people. There's a, a small community of people there, men, women and children. Just in case things went sour, Te Rauparaha sent some warriors to take cover in the surrounding scrub and bushes. Arthur and Thompson marched up, brandishing handcuffs and demanding the two rangatira surrender. I get the sense that they were surprised as much as anything, to be honest. They were um, somewhat indifferent to the you know, demands that they should allow themselves to be manacled, manacled taken away and interrogated. Te Rangi Hayata is said to have yelled out, What do you want with Rangi Hayata? Does he come to arrest you? Does he go to England to take your land? Has he destroyed your tents or anything belonging to you? They responded directly to both um, Wakefield and Thompson saying, well, we're here now, we're here now as men under the sun. We can talk about this now. We don't need to be manacled. We don't need to be taken away to discuss this. We can resolve it together. But Wakefield refused to listen. Thompson ordered their men to fix bayonets. Arthur Wakefield yelled, Forward, Englishmen! Forward! But most of the rest of the deputised company are still across the Tuamarina River. There's a waka, a canoe, that um, sort of bridges the river 
relatively narrow river at that point. And as they're using that to, to cross the river, it would appear that one of the men, and these are not professional soldiers, they're farmers, labourers, you know, they're just very, very ordinary people with no military experience whatsoever, um, and probably very little familiarity with arms, really. Um, one of them accidentally discharges his weapon. From that point, there was no going back. Te Rauparaha called out to his warriors hiding in the bushes. Farewell, sun and light. Welcome, darkness and death. One of the survivors, John Barnacote, gave a first-hand account of what happened next. The shots were whistling by very numerously, and we could not see where they came from. Our men loaded and fired very deliberately, but, but after loading, we're at a difficulty in finding an object to fire at, and we're obliged to fire very much at random. The numbers on each side were relatively even, but the men of Ngāti Tor were combat veterans, while most of the Pākehā were just ordinary blokes with no experience in battle. Seeing two or three killed and, and several wounded and and being unaccustomed to scenes of bloodshed and not being able to see their foe, the men retired up the hill. Arthur Wakefield kept his cool. He was a veteran Navy man and repeatedly tried to rally the men, but most refused to listen and made a run for it. Seeing the battle was lost... Arthur and a handful of others threw away their weapons and surrendered. The Ngāti Tor chiefs argued over what to do with the prisoners. Te Rangi Hayata insisted they should all be executed. And that's because, in the middle of the fighting, a stray musket ball had hit a Māori woman directly between the eyes and killed her. Her name was Te Rongo Pamamao. I mean, it's just the most strangest coincidence. It's almost a tragic comedy of errors, but, um, but Te Rongo happens to be the wife of Te Whaiti. If you're wondering why that's such a weird coincidence, it's because Te Whaiti is another name for Naiti. That's the Māori man who'd advised the Wakefields in their efforts to buy land in New Zealand. He'd just recently died, so his wife, Te Rongo, had been taken into Te Rangi Hayata's household. Because the Whaiti and Te Rangi Hayata are first cousins and very closely related. And, and she is under his direct care and responsibility. So her death sends him off into something of a rage. Um, and he's now culturally obligated to, um, to seek redress, cultural redress, or utu. By all accounts, Te Rauparaha um, petitioned Rangi Hayata to leave things as they were, that there were deaths on both sides, both peoples had suffered, and that um, no more killing should probably transpire. But Te Rangi Hayata was hearing none of it. Let the white people be killed for our sister. They have meddled and without cause have killed a woman in war. He's unable to account for her death 
and check Tarangi Hayata in exercising utu as he has an absolute right to. And Tarangi Hayata at that point was, was set on that path. Tirangi Hayata killed Arthur Wakefield personally, smashing his head open with an axe. The so-called Wairo incident was the first time since the treaty that violent conflict had broken out between Māori and Pākehā. It's often cited as the beginning of the New Zealand wars. Four Māori died, three were wounded. On the Pākehā side, there were 22 dead and five wounded. The New Zealand company was baying for blood, claiming its men had been fulfilling their duty as magistrates and British subjects. The persons by whom they were killed are murderers in the eyes of common sense and justice. Edward Gibbon Wakefield's son, Jerningham Wakefield, was so furious that he stormed down the Kapiti coast armed with a rifle, cutlass and dagger, calling for vengeance against his uncle's killers. Meanwhile, Te Rauparaha rallied support from Māori around Wellington. At Waikanae, he tied his hands together and spoke to assembled members of Te Atiawa. Why should they seek to fetter me? I am old and weak and I must soon pass away. No, that is not what they seek. It is because through my person they seek to dishonour you. If they can enslave me, they think they can degrade the whole Māori race. In Ōtaki, he rallied Ngāti Raukawa, saying, Now is the time to strike! You see the deceit of the white people You know what they mean in their hearts. You can expect nothing but tyranny and injustice at their hands. Come forward and sweep them from the land. It was a very tense situation. But the new British governor, Robert Fitzroy, knew he simply didn't have the resources to fight a war. Plus, Governor Fitzroy quickly worked out that the New Zealand company had acted completely illegally at Wairo. He raced down to Wellington to smooth things over with Ngāti Tor. In the first place, the white men were in the wrong. They had no right to survey the land. They had no right to build the houses on the land. As they were then, first in the wrong, I will not avenge their deaths. As you might imagine, the New Zealand company was furious. They vilified him for not, you know, taking retribution. And in some ways, when I I looked at it, Fitzroy lowered his mind by not doing that because Māori did expect utu, and it never came. I'm not conjecturing what kind of utu could have been exerted because, of course, Fitzroy had limited resources anyway. So tensions lingered, and a few years later, violence flared again in the Hutt Valley as Ngāti Tor and its allies raided a Pākehā farm on disputed land. But by this point, Governor George Grey had taken charge, and he had a lot more troops under his command. Along with Māori allies, these troops forced Ngāti Tor out of the region and captured Te Paraha himself. 
The elderly chief was held without charge for two years and died shortly after being released. A similar conflict over a disputed land purchase near New Plymouth eventually triggered a full-on war in Taranaki, which kept going in one form or another right up until the 1870s. And I don't think the issues in Taranaki are, uh, have still been resolved between uh, Māori and Pākehā. The repercussions are still there today. And even when the company wasn't directly driving these conflicts through dodgy land deals, its policy of assisting colonists to sail to Aotearoa was continually raising the pressure on Māori to hand over more land. Even after the company ceased to exist, that approach was adopted as official government policy, driving the Pākehā population higher and higher. That pressure would eventually help trigger even more wars in Waikato, Taranaki, the Bay of Plenty and the East Coast. While all this was going on, Edward Gibbon Wakefield was continuing to pull the strings behind the scenes. He helped coordinate the New Zealand Company's final settlement in Christchurch. By the way, that's the only New Zealand Company settlement which didn't end up at the centre of an armed conflict with Māori. Wakefield also spent quite a bit of time in Canada dealing with colonial politics over there. But around this time, he was hit by some very serious health problems. A couple of strokes, I think, and um, he was devastated by the death of Arthur. The whole family was. Meanwhile, basically all of his relatives had headed to New Zealand, not just William, Arthur and Jerningham, but also his two other brothers, Dan and Felix, plus a whole bunch of nieces and nephews and wards. Like we said, colonising New Zealand was a bit of a family business. Clearly we had no, no future in England. He thought, well, this is the place that I've helped create and I, 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 this is the place to go now for my health and also the end of my career. So finally, in 1852, Edward Gibbon set sail for the country he'd helped build. It was the first time he'd ever seen New Zealand in person. And at first, he was really happy with what he'd found. The health of the people. Some ladies appear ten years younger than when I parted from them in London. The productivity of the farms. Really tropical in quantity and rapidity of growth. The egalitarianism. The hard-working industry of the upper classes and luxurious independence of the common people. But the settlers weren't so positive about him. Like we mentioned earlier, the New Zealand Company's idea of having capitalists immigrate to New Zealand had not really panned out. Huge numbers of colonists were unemployed and felt like they'd been tricked by the company. In fact, by the time Wakefield arrived in Canterbury, the company had basically collapsed under its debts and surrendered its charter back to the British government. Turned up in Canterbury and got booed, so to speak, because of the various problems that had occurred uh, uh, for the settlers. Plus, you'd had all this conflict with Māori. It kind of felt like all of Wakefield's theories of colonisation had been great on paper, not so great in the real world. 
But Wakefield wasn't ready to concede defeat. He thought the problem was a lack of unified leadership. General narrow-mindedness. Everybody's idea seems to be localised to his own part of the country. I have not met one person as well acquainted as I myself am with New Zealand in general. The solution was to enter politics himself and directly steer the country forward. Wakefield ran for the Hutt electorate, painting himself as a champion of the working class. That was a pretty brave move, given his company's failings were a big part of why the working classes were having so much trouble in the first place. Opportunist again, where can I get my popular support? A born bloody politician. Wakefield rode a populist wave. He promised free 100-acre land grants to out-of-pocket colonists and eventually won himself a seat as a member of parliament. This was the goal he'd been chasing for more than three decades. A goal which had seen him locked up in prison. A goal that led to the death of his brother. A goal that took him and thousands of others on a trip all the way to the other side of the world. In 1854, Wellington held a Founders Festival. 300 people attended, including 60 Māori and all the surviving Wakefield brothers. They raised their glasses to toast... The original founders of the colony, and Mr Edward Gibbon Wakefield. It was a moment of triumph. But Wakefield's political career in Aotearoa had all kinds of problems. He overreached himself because he couldn't stand what he thought were were inferior politicians uh, making decisions that he... he, I mean, it was true. (laughs) He actually knew a damn sight more about everything and how things should be run than anybody else. But um, he just couldn't resist uh, sort of uh, trying again to manipulate things behind the scenes. And, of course, upset a lot of people. Other colonial leaders, like Governor George Grey, didn't mince words when it came to Edward Gibbon Wakefield. He is now a brazen-faced trickster in jobbery and corruption and perfectly irreclaimable. But Wakefield seemed to love the cut and thrust of political brawling. He wrote this in a letter to his sister, Catherine. What a turmoil our politics are in. Though, up to my ears in it, I feel none the worse for the excitement. The other day, I attended a public meeting and spoke without any preparation for an hour and a half. All looks well for the future, so far as the future may be affected by my attaining an influence in the country greater than anybody else. These dreams were cut short. After giving a rousing five-hour speech to his supporters in the Hutt Valley in early December 1855, he fell sick. His son Jerningham wrote, He was attacked with rheumatic fever and suffered acute pain. This turned into neuralgia, with every nerve of his body being affected. He positively 
does nothing but rest. Opens no letters, reads no local papers, indeed tries to think about nothing. He has sadly overtasked both his bodily and mental powers during the past two years. And complete rest will, I have no doubt, do much to restore him. But that turned out to be wishful thinking. Edward Gibbon Wakefield never recovered enough to re-enter public life. He stopped writing. He spent most of the next seven years locked up in a room at his house in Wellington. Eventually, on the 16th of May, 1862, he died. So, what do we say about Edward Gibbon Wakefield? For many Māori, he's the arch-villain of colonisation. Even if we accept that he genuinely believed his idea of systematic colonisation would benefit Māori, his approach to actually implementing the system was paternalistic and reckless. But would things have been any better if someone else had led the colonisation of Aotearoa? There was almost no chance that there wouldn't have been some form of colonial settlement in in New Zealand. That would have happened, period. And, of course, it had a detrimental effect. There is no example, to my knowledge, of any greater power invading or colonising another territory with Indigenous people where, where the Indigenous people come off okay. So we could just dismiss Edward Gibbon Wakefield... After all, if it wasn't him, it would have been someone else, right? But his unique personality and ideas undeniably had a role in shaping modern Aotearoa. His utopian propaganda about this country might have been unrealistic, but you could argue it helped drive later politicians towards social and political reforms, that whole idea that New Zealand could become a better Britain, God's own country, as they used to say. Also... As a Pākehā, I have to acknowledge that Wakefield's the whole reason my ancestors were able to get to Aotearoa. His ideas for assisted immigration were eventually adopted as official government policy. It was still in force all the way up to 1975. There are probably more than a few assisted migrants listening to this show right now. So... I don't think we can say Wakefield was a hero. And personally, I have sympathy for those who say he did more harm than good. But I want to leave you with a quote from an essay I read about the Wakefields. It was written by the famous journalist and essay writer Bruce Jessen. I'll put a link to the whole thing up on our website. Nations, like families, have a duty to recognise their black sheep. They're part of the flock... Without them, the numbers do not add up and nothing makes sense. The Wakefields may be discounted, overlooked or even forgotten, yet in their curious mixture of non-conformity, ambition, deference to power, pragmatism, idealism and hedonism, they are more typical of the New Zealander than most of those who we hold up as models of the New Zealander type.
Very special thanks to my guests, Maury Love, Matthew Baker and Philip Temple. For more information about the Wakefields, check out Dr Temple's book, A Sword of Conscience. Black Sheep is written by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is Jason McClellan. We had voice acting help from Duncan Smith, Adam McCauley, Colin Peacock and Jim Moriarty. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Also check out RNZ's other great podcasts. We have a new one out at the moment called NZ Hip Hop Stand Up. It looks at the stories behind some of Aotearoa's most influential hip hop tracks. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.